0: Near the end of chapter two of On Liberty, John Stuart Mill is going to consider the application of his general principles, in particular the harm principle, not just to whether freedom or liberty of expression ought to be allowed and why it ought to be allowed, but also the manner in which people are expressing things to each other. So he's moving from the that to the how, and he says that it's fit to take some notice of those who say that the free expression of all opinions should be permitted. So that's going along with his main idea on condition that the manner be temperate and do not pass the bounds of fair discussion. So we have some old timey language there that requires a little bit of unpacking. Um, They're saying that free expression, so that would include talking, um, posting things today on internet forums, publishing things, shooting videos, any of that sort of stuff, free expression should be allowed so long as it meets two different conditions. And it could fail either one of those conditions. One is that it's temperate. We don't use that term all that often. And if you're thinking in terms of virtue ethics, mill doesn't mean temperate in the same way that we talk about temperance, except in a rather convoluted manner. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But th- this other one does not pass the bounds of fair discussion. I think that's a little bit easier for us to grasp. We often say that somebody is trying transgressing a limit or they're going too far with something. And we have, you know, a sense of what constitutes fair discussion. So, you know, for example, using ad hominem attacks, most people do view that as going beyond the the pale. And if you're going to make ad hominem attacks, you're kind of disqualifying yourself. But there's plenty of people out there who, who don't actually realize that. And we'll come to that in a moment. But Be that as it may, we we can say, look, there's some basic unwritten rules about what constitutes fair discussion, can't we? Or at least within certain circumstances, certain formats, we can say, well, this is the way that you, you should behave. So coming back to the temper thing, what is it to be temperate? It means that you're essentially being civil with the other person. You're not allowing yourself to get too worked up. You're not saying things in a strain of invective or to use another word that he's going to use a little bit later, vituperation, all right, which means saying that somebody else is vicious. So free expression should be allowed so long as it meets those requirements. If it doesn't meet those requirements, then shut it down. Condemn it with the force of public opinion. If it's on some sort of media platform, get rid of it. Maybe the state can step in and, and regulate it. People can be hired and fired on these bases. All these sorts of threats. Right? That would be what he's he's talking about here. So Mill points out some problems with this, and these are not absolutely insurmountable, but there's certainly things that one would have to take account of if there's going to be some sort of control on this. First, he says there's a difficulty in saying where these actual limits are. Brought up the idea of unwritten rules. Unwritten rules are always difficult. Even written rules are subject to all sorts of reinterpretation. If you've ever had an argument with somebody over a board game about how exactly a rule is to be interpreted, what it applies to. You have a good sense of just imagine there weren't any written rules and everyone just kind of, you know, sensed what they are. Now you'd have an even tougher time, wouldn't you? Now in this case, Mill talks about making the test being offense to those whose opinion is attacked. And he says, this is not a good idea. Why not? He says, experience tells us that this offense is given whenever certain things happen whenever the attack is telling and powerful, so you you actually drive it home quite well, whenever there's an opponent who pushes them hard and who they find it difficult to answer, uh, this appears to that person, if he shows any strong feeling on the subject, an intemperate opponent, an opponent who's not fair, an opponent who is not playing by the rules, right? Who's being mean to them, who's saying the wrong thing, going where they shouldn't go, however we want to frame it if we make whether somebody else takes offense to it, the main criterion, then we're going to have to rule out an awful lot of language. Right. And you know, we can also consider the fact that over time, some things that weren't considered to be offensive, or at least weren't marked as being offensive by people then become offensive later on. There's changes in vocabulary that you can use. There's changes in the ways that you can talk to people. So, Mill says, this is really not going to work very well. And he says, there's a bigger problem though, as well. He says, the principal offenses, of the kind are such as it is mostly impossible, unless by accidental self betrayal, to bring home to conviction. The gravest of them is to argue sophistically. When we call somebody a sophist, that goes back to ancient Greece, where there were these people who called themselves sometimes sophists, sometimes just teachers of rhetoric, and went around teaching people how to make strong arguments, particularly in legal settings. But, you know, we can also talk about the court of public opinion here as well. And arguing sophistically means to argue in ways that strictly speaking aren't fair. So Mill gives you some examples, suppressing facts or arguments, ignoring the good arguments that your opponents have, suppressing facts, ignoring them, saying that they're not true, saying we won't talk about that sort of thing. That's very common in arguments about controversial topics. He gives them some other examples of sophistical things things to misstate the elements of the case. Isn't that a great one? Or to misrepresent the opposite opinion, what we often call straw manning, right? Even steel manning can turn into straw manning. Steel manning is when you you know are supposed to make your opponent's case stronger, but there's ways of doing that which turn out to actually be straw manning as well when you misrepresent the the person's argument, what it is that they're actually claiming. We could go into that as a separate topic some other time. There's interesting strategies at work here. We can also talk about people who use true premises and generate a false inference from that you know a false narrative where parts of it are true but it's the way that they're arranged that gives a false conclusion to it so that's all sophistical right and mill points out that many people who do in fact make false claims or false arguments or argue unfairly are doing so in good faith They are not realizing that they are are doing that. And he says, all of this, even to the most aggravated degree, is so continually done in perfect good faith by persons who are not considered and in many other respects may not deserve to be considered ignorant or incompetent, that it's rarely possible to stamp the misrepresentation as morally culpable and still less could law presume to interfere with this kind of controversial misconduct. So calls for the law stepping in and keeping people from saying things that aren't true, except, you know, within certain circumstances, like not perjuring themselves in a court of law or you're not committing fraud, those those sorts of things. Mill sees that as as essentially a a non-starter. It's not going to to work. He also considers another thing that's really quite important. He asks, okay, let's go into a little bit more detail about what is intemperate discussion. He says invective, sarcasm, personality. That means attacks on persons, I believe, and the like. A little bit later on, he talks about polemic, And stigmatizing those who hold the contrary opinion as bad and immoral people, calumny, vituperation, right? So these are all ways of talking about saying saying bad things about people, talking trash about people, right? That person is only taking that stand because they're a dirty communist or they're a dirty capitalist or they're a this and that, right? Whatever it's going to be. He says that denunciation of these weapons would deserve more sympathy, meaning we'd consider this more more fair, if it were ever proposed to interdict them equally to both sides. Now that's an interesting proposal, right? He's saying most people who want to Say that somebody else is being uncivil, intemperate in these terms is accusing the other side of doing it, but very rarely extending that same criterion consistently to their own side. As we sometimes say today, policing their own, right? So if you're a Republican and you're attacking the Democrats for all the mean things that they're saying about your candidates or your president, well, then you better be looking at the mean things you're saying and your fellow Republicans are saying about Democratic candidates as well, or else you're kind of full of it. You're really just picking sides and you're not criticizing in good faith. So he says that, It's only desired to restrain the employment of them against the prevailing opinion. Against the unprevailing, they may not only be used without general disapproval, but will be likely to obtain for him who uses the praise of honest zeal and righteous indignation. And so, you know, Mill is not framing it in terms of political parties here. He's framing it in terms of what the prevailing opinion is, the current social assumptions, mores, and anything opposed to it. So, you know, if we take something that's that's quite controversial now and I imagine will remain controversial into the future, you know, something like, say, polygamy. If we say polygamy is simply wrong and exploitative and it's bad for women and all of that, those are claims that we could make if we call people who are advocating for it a bunch of dirty wife swappers or something like that. That might be allowed to pass because it's in favor of the prevailing opinion, right? And what the prevailing opinion is going to vary from place to place to place. So in Mill's time, traditional religious belief was the prevailing opinion and disbelief or being a critic of religion was being unorthodox. In today's framework, in many places, being a traditional religious believer might actually place you in the the minority over here. And other people will engage in invective against your religion or its representatives or its texts or its actions or its putative history or anything like that. And so Mill points out that this is a very common dynamic. People are not consistent in their application of this. And he says, whatever mischief arises from the use of this harsh language, it's greatest when it's employed against the comparatively defenseless. So we talk in comedy about punching down, for example, as opposed to punching up. Why is it okay to punch up, but not to punch down? At least that's the prevailing opinion now. Uh, I don't think it was 50 years ago because there's a sense in which You know, somebody being satirized for various traits, if they're an elected public official, they actually have quite a lot of power. If they're a rich person, they've got plenty of money. If they're a celebrity, they've got plenty of fame. But some Joe Schmo down here is much more vulnerable and could be, in many respects, hurt quite a bit more by that. So... Mill thinks that we shouldn't be engaging in this, but we should realize that if we try to restrict it, we really need to do it to protect the vulnerable rather than those who have power, prestige, money, whatever other advantages. Now, Mill himself is actually pretty hands-off when it comes to this. He has some suggestions. He thinks that the law itself should not restrain vituperative language except, you know, things that we can already identify as problems, libel, slander, those those sorts of things. You know, in order to show that something is libel, you've got to show that it's false. Uh, And generally, you have to show some damages accruing from it. I know there's different ways of construing this in different parts of the world, so we don't need to get bogged down in those things. But Mill thinks that the law itself is, he says, law authority have no business with restraining either attacks on infidelity or religion right and then he says what we should do instead is that opinion and by this he means public opinion he means the sanction of publicity opinion ought to judge cases individually if we think that somebody is being intemperate we ought to call them out on that on that particular case he also says that we should not infer vices from the side a person takes, though it be the contrary side of the question to our own. And so what we ought to do then is we ought to be looking at what people say and not worrying so much about as we say nowadays, tone policing or ruling people out or canceling people because they said things in ways we don't like. We can certainly criticize them for that. We can say I think you're being uh, we won't say. I don't think you're being intemperate. we'll say I think you're being uncivil or I think you're being kind of a jerk in the way that you're expressing things. I think you're being tendentious. That's that's a good one. What is somebody being tendentious? Somebody who's just arguing a bad case to argue it because they're invested in it. It's perfectly fine to point that out, but saying that we ought to restrain them by law from doing that sort of thing, Mill does not want that to be to be done. So he wants to have quite a lot of scope for the tone, the manner, the language choice that people use in making their cases and expressing their opinions special thanks to all of my patreon supporters for making this podcast possible you can find me on twitter at philosopher 70 on youtube at the gregory b sadler channel and on facebook on the gregory b sadler page once again to support my work go to patreon.com sadler above all keep studying these great philosophical works